with Armando Iannucci. From The Man Who Mistook His Bike for Olives, with acknowledgement to Oliver Sacks. I've worked five years now at the Neurology Park in Lausanne and I still find myself gawping in fascination at the many disorders which peck at the brain like demented blue tits. It's been my privilege to know scores of individuals with peculiar mental quirks and momentary snaps of the cortex which affect moving abnormalities in personal behaviour. I've written elsewhere of the woman who mistook insults for requests for salt an otherwise healthy dame, incapable of feeling emotional hurt, but phenomenally generous with her seasoning. You will have read my research on S.K., the man who was allergic to being tall, on Mrs. H., who could only live sideways, on Stephen O.G., who confused childishness with banking, and Gerald H. Bartholomew, who had a small hand puppet lodged in the left side of his brain. However, since then, I have come across further extravagances in cognitive behaviour, and I'm happy to set down here a couple of the best ones. Jay was an advertising copywriter in a flourishing British firm. He was moneyed and successful, being the genius behind some brilliant advertising campaigns for asbestos. My first encounter with him indicates, though, the peculiar nature of his disorder. It was as I was driving across London one day. My windows were down, the air was fresh, and Jackie Brambles was at her height. As I looked up on a large billboard to the right of the road was something which couldn't fail to shake me to the gullet. It was a large advertising hoarding which said in big letters, Doctor, you must help me. Please ring this number. I did not have time to read the digits laid out beneath, since at that moment the poster, which was on a revolving electronic billboard, swivelled into another one advertising mints for animals. However, as I rounded the corner, I immediately spotted another perfectly sighted poster, saying, In case you missed that, the number again is 0171 604 3940. Swiftly, I pulled in at a telephone kiosk and dialed. I got through to an advertising agency and was told that my prospective patient was unable to talk to me direct, but could I go visit him? One hour later, in a large, unpleasant lounge at the top of a glass tower in Holborn, and surrounded by giant artwork and marker pens, I met Jay and discovered the nature of his cerebral twist. For Jay was neurologically incapable of communicating other than through poster campaigns. My interrogation of him was painfully slow, since whenever I asked him a question, he would pause momentarily to think of an answer, and then book a series of poster sites across London, organise the printing and display of a sequence of placards illustrating his reply, and then send me off in my car. I would then have to do a circuit of central London before being able to come back to Jay for a subsequent question. Jay was trapped in a ridiculous nether world of exclusively promotional experience. Subsequent studies showed the central communicative lobe of his brain to be severely damaged, all that is apart from the cortexes governing public visual projection and graphic design, which were hideously enlarged. This meant Jay had a flair for poster campaigns and sloganry, and it came as no surprise to discover that he'd been working in this field since the age of 11. Jay was a brilliant advertising executive. In all other matters, though, he was an imbecile. There was very little I could do to help, though in time I made Jay's plight easier by linking him up via a keypad to the neon billboard in Piccadilly Circus, so that his conversation could at least be more easily located. The diminution of the private and personal locuses within the brain, and the concomitant development of exclusively public cognitive structures of communication, is not as unusual as one might expect. 
Another patient of mine, A, was only able to perform certain basic tasks such as washing and childbirth if she were famous. Somehow, the knowledge that she was known and photographed by millions of others was the only experiential reality which could act as a behavioural disinhibitor. When famous, which she became as a result of the publication of my research about her, she was able to wash and have children. The tragedy was she could only care for these children in an extremely public manner, inviting press photographers into the birth and giving certain newspapers exclusive rights to the schooling. She lived her life totally for the mass market, and when her fame declined as the media turned their attention towards another patient of mine, a man who could burp tastes that were over 20 years old, she simply died by choking on a camcorder. This is a testimony to her interesting life. Why the National Lottery is brilliant. I went walking one summer through the hot, ponging air of London City and passed the statue of Winston Churchill in Parliament Square. The stance and gaze of the dark, cast-iron Dresden crusher were the same as they'd always been. Only one thing was different. He was wearing shorts, enormous metal ones. I discovered from a London masonry officer that, because of the hot weather, all the statues in London's parks and gardens were going to be recast in moulds showing each historic figure wearing summer clothes. So, for example, rather than sitting on a stone pedestal, Queen Victoria will now be wearing a bikini and reclining on her back in the park, possibly on a wrought-iron tartan rug. Florence Nightingale will wear marble culottes, while Field Marshal Montgomery will sport stone espadrilles and a fully unbuttoned shirt revealing both nipples, each one made from lapis lazuli. The whole project will take six months and will cost approximately £9 million. You'll be pleased to hear that this excellent scheme will not be funded directly by the taxpayer, but instead will be covered by a donation from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The lottery has benefited British society and culture enormously in many similarly pleasurable ways throughout the last few months. No one, for example, would begrudge the £16 million donated by the fund towards the construction of a 40-foot-high concrete peacock fan across the Thames at Woolwich. And efforts are already underway to use a handy £59 million donation from the fund to build Britain's first opera housing estate. The estate will consist of 14 opera houses, some of them semi-detached or terraced, forming a semicircular avenue among the other houses in Birmingham's Edgebaston district. Each house will hold up to 9,000 people, and when at capacity use, the estate will be able to put on 14 simultaneous operas to a potential total audience of an eighth of a million. The scheme will bring enormous employment opportunities to the people of Edgebaston, many of whom will be required to sell programmes or work in crush bars. The Lottery Charities Fund, too, has touched people's lives in astounding ways. For example, an 85-year-old woman, Elaine Donnelly from Peterborough, has had her application accepted for £22 million towards the costs of getting her about with her own personalised national monorail system. The monorail is essentially an extension of her current chairlift, but will continue beyond her first floor landing and out onto a connecting line, linking her with major towns and cities throughout the British mainland. She's known to be very happy. The country's obsession with the lottery has been unfairly blamed for all manner of ills. Apparently there's now firm evidence that global warming is exacerbated by the enormous amounts of frictional heat given off when using scratch cards. But why should we deny so many people such an innocent pleasure, especially one that costs them only 20 to £30 pounds a week? 
the National Lottery is a total and unqualified success. It has provided Britain with a much-needed focus for national enthusiasm, now that the royal family are clearly rubbish. It has placated the restless and rioting, and has accelerated the closure of unsightly bingo halls. Its peaceful message should be spread far and wide. Once, in the muddy trenches of a stupid war, all hatred ceased for a game of Christmas football. Think now what harmony could be brought to the battlefield all year round if someone set up a lottery stall there. My favourite dictators. China's late gibbering supremo Deng Xiaoping is now dead, but he did last until his mid-90s, flapping stupidly around like a wasp in October. It was interesting to note that even at the age of 94, he commanded utter authority in that land, though he held no official position in the Chinese government. Despite his reported inability to speak, hear, see or think, Deng's every bodily function was granted the status of edict. The slightest dribble would lead to the construction of a $50 billion dam, while a hundred dissidents were shot at the merest crack of a hip. Compare his aura of command with the one that still fails to surround Bill Clinton, a fresh-faced young man with a healthy libido and with his fingers, all of them working, on bigger buttons. Despite an American economic boom and an extended stay in office, there's still a devastating perception of indecisiveness and lack of backbone in Clinton, which occasionally leads to his administration's authority collapsing faster than Felicity Kendall's face. So how exactly does one acquire authority? My old Latin teacher, Mr Franken, had it, while my maths teacher, Mr Henderson, hadn't. Mr Franken would simply stare a rampaging pupil into submission with a casual look, while Mr Henderson could administer physical punishments until the collapse of the core curriculum and still get pelted with prepubescent spit. It seems you're either born with the word authority tattooed on your skin, or you're not. Knowledge of this fact from an early stage would be a dangerous thing, it could so easily have spurred Mr Franken on to conquer half of Europe instead of just teaching us about how the Romans did. On a more national level, John Major must surely have worked out this basic difference between himself and his predecessor. Margaret Thatcher always won our submission, though people knew at the time that what she was up to was objectively rubbish. Everyone raised their quibbles about the organised destruction of Britain's manufacturing base, the creation of an underclass big enough to fill 18 centre parks, and the logical inconsistency of saying there was no such thing as society while being enormously keen to release psychopathic schizophrenics back into it. Yet the nation still voted for her in a series of regular involuntary spasms throughout the 80s. At the moment of voting, some basic primeval impulse took hold of Britain's brains when pencil was put to traceless slip. Even Labour MPs were known to go into polling booths on election day, believe the Tory posters about Labour's tax plans and quietly vote themselves out of Parliament. After Thatcher, by unanimous agreement, the Conservatives had a puddle as leader and their supporters consequently went into hiding like Nazis in Paraguay. Identities were disguised through plastic surgery and the shame of past misdeeds erased. It's now easier to capture a man of the calibre of Carlos the Jackal than to get someone to admit voting Conservative in the last election. People like the idea of someone who tells them what to do. We like to have decisions made for us, even if they're screamingly bad ones, since it's still a lot less bother than having to make them ourselves. Anybody who can make more decisions, faster decisions and louder decisions than anyone else gets our vote. 
It doesn't matter that a leader's response to the first threat of armed invasion is to order all four-year-olds into a line across the south coast and get them to urinate a huge canal in front of the enemy. If that order is given swiftly and confidently and within seconds of the initial threat, we will all quite happily put our sons and daughters into the first train to Dover with a bag of citrus fruits. Those who run micro and macro economies are also enormously impressed by leaders. Hence the buckets of Wonga company managers are happy to pay for their employees to attend management training courses on leadership skills run by the likes of Will Carling or the British Swimming Squad. Will Carling is someone who's very good at organising a group of bulky men to pass an oval bladder about a field successfully, and yet British industry seems only too anxious to try introducing some of these skills into the boardroom. Why? Perhaps the reason lies in our meek relationship with these authoritative people. Management pays for such excitement because otherwise, what is management other than an essentially dull and uneventful set of circumstances that blights a frighteningly high number of people's lives? Management encourages most unfortunates to live a life of unattainable ambition within a make-believe hierarchy and appeases disappointed hopes by giving out little parcels of responsibility to those who are slightly fat. Management is a permanent reminder that you are not ultimately in charge of your own destiny, that you will never run with the wind in your hair across freshly harvested cornfields, that your hopes of maybe one day opening a restaurant or just a record shop are now charred ash, and that your idea of having a good time is eating a red Leicester ploughman's with some of the boys from the squash ladder. Managers are widespread and work a day. Leaders and heroes aren't which is why we're happy to let them get on with it, whether launching a nuclear assault or showing us how forming a scrum can help a board meeting come to a quick decision on marketing strategy. Meanwhile, in a small hidden city kept private for his own use, dictators like Deng Xiaoping sat ordering billions of people about, ultimately because he knew we couldn't be fagged clearing our mess up ourselves. Leaders who try winning votes by promising to consult with the people before reaching any momentous decisions have only themselves to blame when the words, you tell us, mate, come back to their entree. As Labour and Conservative leaders jettison policy in favour of in-depth surveys into what the people want, they may like to pause to consider that what the people really want is for them to behave a bit more like a 94-year-old Chinaman with bowel trouble. For that, ultimately, is who we want from our democracy. And if he's played at Twickenham, then even better. Armando Yanucci's Facts and Fancies was produced by Jonathan James Moore. And there'll be more from Armando at the same time next week. This is the Comedy Club. The Comedy Club. The Comedy Club. On BBC Radio 4. Now, meet... East London's Music Hall Artiste and OAP, Ida Barr. Ida B, I'm a fish MC from Heckney. I'm old may we, but down with the kicks, you see. I was a star, being in decline since a bungled bunion in 69. I had the art, moved to the time of block, but now I'm hot with artificial hip-hop. Best of music hall, best of R&B, so BBC, are you ready? Welcome to my world, la-di-da. Here she is, Miss Ida Barr. 
This kid says to me today, Ida, he says... We're being crimed for being smaller than them as, as well, just because we're children. He figured that kids are expected to take the rap every time there's a problem. That adults don't apologise if they do something wrong. Well, it might be true. But it's also true that human beings get on pretty well. We only hear about fallings out on the news, but given that there's about, I don't know, 47 billion of us living in one city, it's really rather blooming marvellous that we get on at all. Most of us don't commit genocide or play loud music or spit on the bus or nothing. But the truth must be investigated. Are we criming small children, as my little pal claimed this arvo? What is going on in our society? Is it broken? as the politicians delight in telling us, just so they can pretend to know how to fix it. Sometimes when I go into town with my friends and stuff, you're in the shop, you're looking around, yeah. you've got like an old man security guard who's always watching the kids, they're always following you around, yeah. and like you're in a shop, you're buying something, they just look at you really odd, like they're looking down on you. You're not even doing some things wrong and they just look at you and go, excuse me, and like they expect you to give up to them. Like even if you had something like a broken leg, they'd expect you because they're older than you yeah. to get off your chair and give it to them. Even with a broken leg. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening to you, my new friend. Welcome to the sitting room area of me warden controlled flatlet. You're being recorded on my trusty Idapod, and I've got you propped up on the reclining chair from Mediquip, so you do look comfy. And they do faithfully promise to steam clean should any old dear actually die in these chairs, so that's nice, isn't it? Hello, this is Idapod, OAP and Rapstar. You'll know me for me hit musical number of yesteryear. I had a little thrush, but now it's gone away. And also my new dance rap hit, Get Old or Die Trying. I'm investigating the issues that get off my goat. Now, time for another essay from the creator of Thick of It. Facts and Fancies by 